0: Welcome back to this second series of live shows Uh, here at Palestine Deep Dive. We examine the big issues in the Middle East and with a special focus on Palestine but we also like to take a look at the wider global situation and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Roger Waters. Uh, Roger is one of the most important musicians of our time, founding member as you know of legendary progressive rock band Pink Floyd He's also had a prolific solo career since leaving the band back in 1985. Now, Roger is, a rev- I hope he won't mind me saying, a revolutionary musician in every sense. Uh, Vijay Prashad recently noted that he is both a person who revolutionized music, but as well as being a revolutionary who happens to be a musician. And having had a lifelong commitment to social and global justice causes, Roger has taken up many of the major issues of our time including of course the Palestinian cause I'm Mark Seddon uh, and I used to be Al Jazeera's UN correspondent and I've worked for the United Nations I worked for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and for the president of the UN General Assembly Maria Fernanda Espinosa so without ado thank you Roger very much for joining us I think we're gonna have a great conversation today. Uh, we're, we're opening up uh, this conversation also to, to many of our viewers who are from all over the world, uh, who'll be sending in some of their questions. Um, we wanna hear from you, Roger. We wanna hear what makes you tick. And I wanted to really begin by by saying that, you know, there are a lot of people out there, they managed to achieve fame and fortune, uh, and more importantly, have this fantastic platform uh, Uh, that platform can sometimes be wasted and we were mentioning just a moment ago the Kardashians in respect of that Uh, but you know a lot of people have this platform but they don't necessarily take a stand you have and I'm just wondering you know right from the very beginning what what made you tick What, what what got you what made you the person you are in terms of your Uh, your uh, empathy, your identity, your support for progressive courses. I know your parents were very principled and radical, and also know that you joined this campaign for nuclear disarmament, a supporter of it, back when you were 15. So did this all happen quite early for you? What was it that made you, got you started?
1: Well, yeah, hey, by the way, thank you for having me on this programme. My mum and dad, you just, there's the nail on the head. They were both extremely uh, thoughtful um, people. My mother grew up in a kind of middle, middle-class family in England after the First World War. They had enough money to send her to a pri- away to private um, boarding school for girls, so she did that. So she reached adulthood, knowing all about And that's what they teach you at girls' boarding, and boys' boarding schools, I have to say. Look at Boris, he went to a boarding school. Um, so, uh, but but they both they both before the Second World War, just before it became um, involved in left wing politics. They both joined the Communist Party. Previously, my father had taught; uh, um, he had taught physical education and English at St George's School in Jerusalem from 1934 to 1936. So he had some kind of knowledge of what was going on in Palestine in those days. And he was disturbed about it. I have letters that he wrote to my grandmother, saying how worried he was about the predicament of the indigenous people of Palestine, then, before the Second World War. So, um, but, the, but they were both deeply humane people and it rubs off. There, I'll tell the story very quickly. Um, because I tell it so often because it's so fundamental. My mother, when I was 13 years old, one day said to me, look Roger, as you go through life you're going to come up against difficult questions that you're going to have to wrestle with. I think, you know, she probably told me this on the way to or from a British-China Friendship Association meeting in the Friends Meeting House or something. Anyway, she said when that happens, She said, "And these decisions will not always be easy. You have to do research. You have to try and find out the truth of what it is that you're trying to make a decision about. Do the research as hard as you can. It won't be easy. When you finish doing the research, the rest of it, part two of the exercise, is very, very easy. You just do the right thing. That was my mother. And I was 13. Well, what an incredible lesson. You know, I could give that lesson. We were talking about Kim Kardashian's bum earlier. Well, you were. I'm disinterested, of course. Um, but we're talking about my business, me being in rock and roll and how many people there are who may or may not will never know, have feelings of empathy for their fellow human beings and never say a dicky bird about it, you know. Well, that's because their mom or dad didn't sit them down in a chair and go, hey, you know, John, if he's John Bon Jovi or whatever. When you grow up, there will be difficult questions, of, Well, blah, 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 and you have to do the right thing. It's never occurred to him, for instance. I'm, I'm not picking you out, John, because, you know, you're specially awful in any possible way. You're just, you know, a bloke in a band. but. uh, Does it ever cross your mind to do the right? I doubt it, because if it did, you would be part of the BDS movement. You would be looking at Palestine and going, fuck me, they're murdering children on a daily basis. It's it's absolutely routine part of the policy of the Israeli government. It's part of their um, basic kind of policy of... um, ethnic cleansing and genocide and apartheid. And what you do? You you go, "Mm, I think I'll go and tune my guitar. What do you do? What, what, don't you do something about that? Yeah, join BDS. Join it now, Go, go and join BDS. Go and ring up, ring me up. I'll put you in touch. You've got my email address. Let's get on with it. They're shooting the feet of footballers. You know, this was something I said once during a conversation in Vancouver, actually. In 2017,
0: it was well. Look, Roger. I mean, we've got we've got a Mohammed uh, a Kanala, I think that's a, or Mohammed kahla who's who's just got in touch. He says there are tens of thousands of Arab individuals like myself. They follow. They follow you. We follow you, and share with what you believe in. That's equal rights for all humans and freedom of living in the world we believe in. For those fans, we, the Arab ones, seeing the difficult conditions in which we now live in with corrupted leaders and bad governments making deals with enemies, what could be your message to us? Keep
1: keep resisting. Keep your mind open. I I hope that you had a mum or dad who gave you the advice that my mum gave me when I was young. Because if you keep your mind open and don't allow yourself to be corrupted by the kind of brave new world slash 1984 propaganda that Orwell and Huxley warned us about all those years ago, you, you will be able to divine quite quickly that something is wrong in the state of Denmark. I mean, in the state of wherever it is that you live. And what is wrong is that somehow, the human race, as a whole, has bought settler colonial capitalist idea that the strong should rule the earth and the winner takes all, and it's perfectly okay for some people to be very, very wealthy, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Schwarzman and all the other arseholes, and and the rest of you um, should not, should scrabble around, you know, trying to get enough to eat for your children, never mind them getting an education or... Or having the freedom to read the books they want to or to enlighten themselves or be interested in art or or anything or anything else. They're so busy scrabbling to get that last ten dollars that they need so they won't end up homeless on the street, whether you're in Beirut, you know, or 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 whether you're Anywhere in the Middle East, but also anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere. That is how the world is but arranged. Roger, and we must come, come in. I were... mean, when
0: when when you were growing up, um, and your parents, of course, your parents would have grown up. You know, before the war, they would have. You know, they 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 probably saw the end of the First World War, the carve up of the Middle East. Uh, they were one of their great heroes. made
1: Pico, Pico, exactly. A, I was
0: just going to mention you took the words out of my mind. sykes Pico, which for some of our viewers will know, others won't. This the, the French-British carve-up of uh, essentially the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Yeah. But after after all of that, after the Second World War, uh, and there's this this promise never seriously to go through this again. We, you know, there was the United Nations, there was the Charter, the UN Charter. There was the Universal Declaration of of uh, human rights and what have you, you often talk about that. I do. Is that is that is that what we're kind of missing when you're talking about you know there's people you know sort of needing some kind of base in which to build things from? This, these basic building blocks just aren't being taught or not being understood. No, they're not. I mean, I would say this, Mohammed. What happened, mate, is that at the
1: end of the First World War, they thought. Me. That was a disaster. All those people killed and what, what have we gained? Well, what we've gained is that we can form the League of Nations, which was a cabal of all the countries who who had won the war got together and said now we can rule the world, you know, properly. And then, and they realized then in 1945 that they had absolutely failed to do that, which they always will, because this was a cabal of the colonists. This was the imperial powers getting together and saying, together we can rule the world. Second World War happened, and after the Second World War, they had a much better idea, which was saying the people, of these United Nations. Because it's not, the UN is not about the United Nations, it's the peoples of these United Nations. Together, we must write a charter based and base international law exactly upon this charter. And then, and in 1948, they also, in Paris, wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 30 articles, as I've said till I'm blue in the face, Right. John Bon Jovi. I'll keep picking on John because I know <laughs> him and he's not a bad lad, but he's ignorant as shit, you know, as almost everyone in the world is. Um, if we followed those 30 articles, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You could be playing golf. Or I could be doing whatever I do. You know, it would all be lovely. And Mohammed would probably have a job or he'd be at university or he'd be doing if we only followed the basic 30 articles of the UN, but we can't. Why can't we? Because our leaders, the powers that be, do not subscribe to it. They pay lip service to it. They pretend that they care about human rights, but they don't give up. They couldn't care less about human rights. All they care about is power and wealth, probably in the other order, wealth and power. Maybe power first, because power provides them with wealth. Power is only to get wealth for themselves. That's what it's for. That's the way their brains work. I live in the United States. The entire society, 300 million people, is based upon the premise that what you have to do is get power so you can get wealthy and then keep all the power and keep all the wealth and make certain you never share it with anybody and you have to harden yourself. When you walk past that vet lying in the street home, you have to walk by without even glancing down. You must never obey the impulse to squat down beside him or her and talk to them. How are you doing, mate? John Prine's song, hello in there. You must absolutely resist that as hard as you can, you know, in in order to remain blinkered and get on with your task, which is to make yourself more powerful and richer. So that's what we're faced with, Mohammed, and you're, we're faced with it here just as much as you are. I don't know where you're living. Well, Roger, if, if
0: I may, I mean, but there also there are lots of uh, opportunities for people like uh, you and others to, to shift people's opinions, to move people in a different direction. Uh, and, and we've got another question. This one is from uh, uh, Constantine. He says, uh, dear Roger, thank you so much for your time. What do you think are appropriate ways to encourage your fellow musicians to speak out against uh, Israeli occupation and other political issues around the world? I mean, you have certainly over uh, various artists appearing in Israel. You've you've intervened often and persuaded them to think again. So you know we can all do things. <laughs> up.
1: You know, my, my, I have had a small effect, but on precious. I've almost given up writing letters to fellow artists because. You know, I've got writer's cramp. I've written so many letters to so many people appealing to the humanity in them, appealing to their capacity to feel empathy for the dead child or for the parents of the dead child. Look, I, t- I spoke to you about this earlier. There it is. This is an op ed piece that I wrote to Rolling Stone in 2017 that they didn't print because they said, we've heard enough from you about Palestine. And there she is, bless her, Al-Hams, yeah. Iman Al-Hams, she was 13 years old when she was shot dead by an Israeli sniper, safe in his armor, in his guard post. And um, the, uh, the commanding officer, of the man who shot this child dead um, was eventually brought up before a tribunal and he was admonished. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It will be in this, I will have written it in here, but he was admonished for um, not, uh, not following army protocol in exactly the right way. He stood over this child and riddled her body with bullets, as she lay on the ground, with an automatic weapon. And, and his punishment for that was to be told that he hadn't followed procedure in the correct way, and he was giving a little tiny slap on the wrist and told to get back to work in the occupied territories. So it's really bloody well done.
0: You know. Well, you know, Roger, you 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 bring up another point there, which is if, is the kind of the mainstream media, if you like. It's a pretty loose term, and maybe Rolling Stone might normally be described as mainstream media. But do you think it's much more difficult uh, to try and get? You know, because if if we were having this discussion, let's say, on the BBC or CNN or whatever, by now, somebody would have said, well, stop Roger from talking about these interviews. Or he's making claims that it can't be... and all of this sort of stuff. They'd be trying to calm it all down and trying to get you to move on to something else. And it's the same way with much of the mainstream media, um, who are very, very scared. I mean, just two weeks ago, a letter was put together by prominent British Palestinians, some 20-odd from different walks of life, and they wanted this letter to be published in the Guardian newspaper in this country and various other public, saying they were concerned that the Palestinian cause was being being forced out of the national media discussion. And oddly enough, none of the media would publish it. So, so what, are we to do? what are we to do about, you know, getting that, what you just, that article there, which you, that op-ed, which many years ago, you tried to get into Rolling Stone, probably even more difficult to get in now.
1: Well, to give Rolling Stone their due, I I did do one of these with them a few months ago. And um, during that interview, I said to the journalist, um, let's talk about the elephant in the room, okay? Because there is an elephant in the room. And what is the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room is American exceptionalism. And I then went on to say that, the problem that you in Rolling Stone and me because I live in the United States of America face is American exceptionalism. Americans believe the myth of American exceptionalism. They believe that America is concerned about human rights and freedom and liberty and freedom of the press. And blah, blah, blah. America doesn't give a shit about any of those things. You don't, don't look at what people say, look at what they do. Look at what America does. America is destroying the planet almost single-handedly because it's so rich and powerful and it has so much weaponry and it makes so much money, blah, 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 blah. So Rolling Stone, bless them, they did not edit that out. That went out on the air, but it went out on the air on a Rolling Stone web, you know, webinar to how many people, I have no idea, a few thousand people. But if I, if I tried to say something like that, on a B- well, the BBC won't talk to me. I wrote a letter to the Times about the disgusting charade in the High Court uh, where Keir Starmer's new Labour, yet another new Labour, I thought we'd had enough of new Labour with Tony Blair, but apparently we haven't. So we've got Keir Starmer now with another new Labour rolling over in the High Court And accepting all the accusations of anti-Semitism that that were levelled against Jeremy Corbyn and many others, completely unfairly, they didn't even fight back. And and my sources tell me that they would have won that
0: fight in the High Court if they'd fought against it. But it was well, they they, they they settled out of court. Um, and uh, they had been advised, you're right, Roger, that they were most likely uh, to, to win. And this was an astonishing thing, because by, by doing that, it does kind of accept their claim that the Labour leader uh, was anti-Semitic, which is an outrageous thing. But it brings me on to this question that's just come from David Parsons. And David is uh, he's in Scotland, and he's on this subject. He said, many people tie you with this anti-Semitic label by picking and choosing parts of your work to fit their own agenda those who don't know your work enough or directed to songs like In the Flesh or see imagery of stars of Davies falling from a plane like bombs, they don't see or hear of the shell logos or crosses falling too. They don't see that you're making the point that all religions and greed are used to divide and conquer us. So as soon as people label you anti-Semitic, a lot of people aren't willing to listen any further. So please explain to people out loud about what you're your musical work is really all about, and explain the bigger picture to them. Peace and love from David Parsons in Scotland. Well, thank you very much, David. I'm not sure where you're
1: from, so I won't attempt the accent. Um, I'll leave that to the schoolteacher.
0: You? Yes. You behind the bake sheds?
1: <laughs> Just to quote me for a minute. Um, well spotted. Yeah, what can you do? You can only go on trying to educate people and telling them the truth. Clearly, I don't have an anti-Semitic bone in my body. I never have. I've never done anything anti-Semitic. I've never said anything anti-Semitic. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a construction by the uh, Israeli government and their Ministry of Strategic Affairs um, to label me as such in order to draw attention away from the fact that I support what Mark and I were talking about earlier, the universal declaration of human rights. If we could accept that that we all support that universal declaration and also somehow manage to persuade the governments of the world to subscribe to it and to make it, by international law, we wouldn't be having any of these conversations. Obviously, the Israeli government could not do what it's doing and has done since 1948 if they were required by international law to live up to the article... 30 articles of the Universal Declaration of Independence. So, David, thank you for pointing out that the accusation of anti Semitism, which should be reserved for all the neo Nazis all over the world, are genuinely anti Semitic, is a smokescreen to prevent this happening. And the fact that this conversation is happening between Mark and I on a little webcast. All right, for you, for you people who are interested to listen to and not on Panorama, who won't give me the time of day. I just want to say one other thing to David, if I may. David, please, if you're anywhere near uh, the West Coast, please, from me personally, thank the Celtic supporters who, who, who supported my brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters in Palestine by holding up the Palestinian flag. Um, at Celtic Football Club a few years ago when there was all the uh, tomfoolery about taxing football clubs for behaving in particular ways. It was noted, not by me, by everybody who supports the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so thank you, your your gesture did not go unnoticed. And... um, yeah, sorry. I just yeah, well, actually,
0: David has just written here. So my dad will hate that, but I have some good friends, including those in my band, the Scottish Pink Floyd. I'll pass that on to them. So there you go. Right, well, anyway, so- <laughs> we've got another question here, uh, Roger. This is from Adam Abdallah. And he says, hello, Roger. Lovely to see you. Uh, you and your music are an inspiration to all people of conscience across the world. Can you tell us a little more about how the song Leaving Beirut came to be? What's the story behind it? Why is it important to look beyond imperialism and in the face of humanity? All the best and many warm hugs from Leeds in Yorkshire. Right, Adam, your friend from Amsterdam. Well, you may know Adam. Right, uh, leaving Beirut in 1960
1: or 61 or sometime like as it, as is mentioned in the song. My mum, the family, Austin A30 and Willa and I, my mate, who's in the Wall movie, we sit on a mountaintop somewhere talking about all this and that, um, drove off and we drove round Europe for three months that summer. And And then the next summer, for 25 quid, I bought an old Royal Naval Ambulance and with some um, students from Cambridge and the same friend, Willa, we drove off to go to Baghdad in the summer. And we got as far as Istanbul, Beirut, and we were trying to go over the mountains uh, to go into Syria and on our way to Baghdad. So we were on the road to Damascus, um, aptly, I thought, thinking back to the gospels, uh, when, when it blew up as old um, 1948 Morris commercial ambulances do. And Will and I had to take it back and get it into the duty-free zone in Beirut. But I mean, what an incredible gift from whoever it is who gives you gifts, that young men could travel in the Middle East when I was in 1961. It was safe. Mm -hmm. It wasn't completely, but it was pretty safe. Anyway, so, and I had to hitchhike home. I hitchhiked home um, from Beirut in 1961. So that that song is based upon the fact that I was put up the first night after I left Beirut by uh, an Arab family uh, in the suburbs of Beirut. And that's what the song is about because um, as as that very young man, I was 18 or 19 years old, was deeply affected by the extraordinary generosity of this Muslim family. and
0: well, if, I, if I, in growing up in the 60s, I mean these were very different, uh, much more it, it would have, would seem hopeful times. I mean, youth was really driving a revolution. I mean, and it actually in many ways quite revolutionary situations in Paris in 1968, that the Czechoslovakia Dubcek. I mean, throughout the 60s, all the countries in Africa. Uh, achieving their independence their after independence struggles—a much more hopeful time, a time of peace and love, a time of um, yeah. So, what, how, how how can how is it possible to get back to some of that, if you like, to rekindle that spirit of optimism, and a feeling that everybody could make a change? Well, well I, 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 I guess
1: my I guess what I'm coming to think now, and what, what I'm wrestling with is that. What we maybe didn't understand then was that the governments that we speak about are largely powerless. Certainly in the United States they are. The powers that be are the ideology of corporate America and they're, they're it, the wealth that creates the power is what controls and runs the country. So even though there were, there were social revolutions in some African countries, uh, for instance, we went into those countries, and we assassinated Lumumba and, you know, the guy in Kenya, and well, I, I'm very bad at remembering names, so you'll have to forgive me. And it's only sort of now, really, that it's really coming home with full force, and this is 50 years later or 60 years later, that um, the great capitalist blob led by the United States of America will not allow colonized people to have their land and their freedom back. Because however much on the surface it looks as if um, things have changed, And that Rhodesia no longer needs to be named after Rhodes and so on and so forth, that it can have its own name, an African name, and that you know, like South Africa, they can. The fact is that the people with the power, i.e., the settler colonialist base of all of this, has never for a second thought that they no, you've got. Well, look at all those raw materials you've got. You're never going to be allowed to rule the Congo or Ghana or Nigeria or any of that. We're never going to give you your independence. Our corporations will always have absolute control. And we will probably find one or two corruptible politicians who are the right color to be in charge of those countries. So we will subvert them. And if anybody comes out who wants to genuinely represent the people, like Mamamou, who wants to genuinely represent the people of the country and for the spoils that are available with the minerals that are under the surface, wants to share them out in welfare and social services and education and health and all of those things that people want, we are not going to allow that Person to survive. We will kill them or remove them by other means, fair or foul. And they're doing it right now in Latin America. For instance, the ousting of um, Morales in Bolivia is a perfect example. They're trying to do it in Venezuela. They've been doing it in Nicaragua for the last 50 years constantly and consistently, and the people constantly come back and go, no, leave us the fuck alone. We would like to be able to run this country on socialist principles for the benefit of all the people. And they say, no, you can't do that. That's against our rules. You will do it the way we suggest, or we'll kill you.
0: Roger, you you had this, of course, this famous album, The Wall. You were there when The Wall came down in in, uh, Berlin. Um, oh, well. Of course, that just before that, the world, as we know, was divided really between two uh, power blocks, the uh, Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Bloc, Warsaw Pact, NATO and, and, and America. But in between was the non-proliferation, uh, the, 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 the non-aligned movement. So the developing world had their voice at the UN, for instance, and it was quite powerful. I mean, people forget how powerful it was and what a powerful voice it was for Palestine as well. That went with the end of, uh, of, the, of the duopoly, if you like, and we got, the, you know, the American century. Now, yeah, I, the question I got for you is, you're in America now, this is supposedly the American century, but people can see from around the world that this great superpower isn't handling things such as climate change or a pandemic or whatever nearly as well as lots of other smaller Taiwan or Korea or Japan or whatever. But my question is, and coming through this is this incredible polarization in America. Uh, what do you? How do you see things panning out there from where you are?
1: Well, the, the non-aligned nations, the alignment of the non-aligned is gathering power again. Really, it really is. Um, so that's one good thing uh, on the horizon. The polarization in America is is just a natural outcome of the dog eat dog ethos that they adopted in the, the um, early 17th century when they invaded America and started murdering people. So so and it, and so it's an absolute. If you if a country is based upon the idea that one group of people are allowed to murder another group of people, as they were here and. Nobody denies it, but nobody talks about the genocide of the Native American through the last four or five hundred years. But if you you allow that to happen, you can't expect it to suddenly stop happening. It's going to go on happening, except that people are now taking to the streets. So the Black Lives Matter movement, aligned with many other movements, people are beginning to say, well, no, this is not... um, All hunky-dory like you know in the 50s we believed it and actually having the ussr there um as as an opposing empire was extremely convenient for the powers that be to maintain their control well now we know that russia is just as much an oligarchy as the united states is you couldn't pick you couldn't slide a cigarette paper between the oligarchs of the of of the whatever it's called, of Russia, whatever Russia's called now, and the United States, they're the same animal, you know, they're, they're exactly the same animals. So, um,
0: well, uh, I would say that the two key oligarchs there, Trump and Putin, are great mates. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, of they, course they, they are. of course but, they are,
1: they absolutely would be, nevertheless, hmm. uh, mainstream media in America has been trying from MSNBC to Fox News they're all on the same there is no um, there's no polarization in the media they're all keen on Russiagate and Gate, anything to divert attention from the fact that the United States is such a dreadful mess um, mm. is, is a kleptocracy and an oligarchy. let me just say this The the idea that there's polarisation as expressed in the fights between the Republicans and the Democrats is a complete smokescreen. It's a myth. They're exactly aligned. They both completely support the ruling class and and corporate power and have no intention of upsetting it. And the war machine and the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about in 1961 in his... Resignation speech, you know, when he left, when when he left power. Yes, so that,
0: but we can see that challenges have come further than they could ever have done some time ago. I think that Bernie Sanders being a case in point in the United States. So there, there, there are real challenges, and you do wonder whether we may be on the cusp of something because. Youngsters, especially, have got much greater access to information and news. It can have a bad effect because people are in their little silos, but also people have this great access to information that perhaps they your generation, my generation, uh, didn't have. And they're not prepared to, to, to take all of this stuff. So, well, maybe, my, worse. maybe this is the worst you'll get better. I hope I, I hope I live long enough,
1: Mark, to see that information exchange bearing some fruit in terms of the way that we organize ourselves globally to fight back against the status quo. Because if the status quo doesn't go, we all go. We're dead. Finished. It's over. The planet will not... There will be no sustainable... No life on the planet. Not just the human race, yet there is only one race. That homo sapiens is a race and the fact that some of us are different colors or wave different flags is irrelevant we're all african it's absolutely accepted now we all come from african me,
0: origins we're, we're all from the rift valley originally aren't we hey we've got a question it well no it's more that it's more a point really from uh, david balavi and david says uh, as a jewish man i'll tell you to criticize the government of Israel for its policies in no way falls within the definition of anti-Semitism. In fact, it's it's anti-Semitic itself to suggest that a country cannot be criticized for its official policies and acts simply because it proclaims itself to be a Jewish state. The hypocrisy in that false notion notion could not be thicker. Roger, you're not anti-Semitic. In fact, you're trying to save Israel from the profiteering warmongers. So there you go. Uh, That's from David. Um, Alex here, Alex Bastos, there you go, Uh, hi Roger, says Alex, thank you so much for all your inspirational work in support of Palestine and for people struggling all over the world, why do you think that it's important uh, that so many people um, are afraid, uh, sorry I've just, just jumped there, why do you think that so many people are afraid to call out Israeli apartheid? and in support of Palestinian rights. Why do people not view Palestinians like other people struggling for self-determination and freedom? That is a good point. I mean, because it was much clearer as for, for, the, for a lot in the media when uh, South Africans were struggling for their freedom. But when it comes to Palestine nowadays, it's, it's a shut shop. What yeah, can be... The South Africans didn't
1: have APEC supporting them. Let's not forget that in the United States where the conversation is at least as loud as it is anywhere else in the world. The the, um, Israeli lobby was extremely well organized, as shown by the documentary films made by your old bosses at Al Jazeera, the lobby and the American lobby, which are being re-shown now. I'm happy to say uh, on many, many sites, so people should watch those. Go, go and look at the lobby and the, and the American lobby. Um, so what am I saying? Yeah, APEC is losing its grip. That's why it was so lovely to hear from David, because there is a generation now of, of um, Jewish people who, who are actually going, whoa, hold on a minute, this has nothing to do with our faith. This is not what we read in the Torah. We're supposed to be kind to people. We cannot be an apartheid state. It goes against everything. All the beliefs of Judaism are completely against um, what is going on in Israel. So what is going on in Israel is pure settler colonialism. And it it was orchestrated, in fact, by a bunch of Eastern Europeans who arrived in in Palestine, you know, in the 30s and, and through the 40s organized and had a kind of, Bloody revolution in 1948 after the Second World War and imposed settler colonialism on the whole of historic Palestine. Well, not in Jordan, it's true. but um, so, so, David, yeah, you are one of many and your numbers are growing, particularly in the Jewish community uh, in the United States. I just want to finish by saying this. People say, you're never going to persuade them, you know. You'll never persuade Netanyahu or... George Bush or things, your point of view. And I go, what are you talking about? I know that, of
0: course
1: I will. I don't preach to them, I preach to the choir. I want to preach to the university students in, you know... um, Well, JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, but students for justice in Palestine, in the universities and the campuses all over the world who are organizing. All my friends in Berlin who are standing up in front of the Bundestag and decrying the fact that they have legislation that's adopting the UHRA definition of anti-Semitism that says any any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Bollocks! No, it's not. And they're standing there shouting and holding their packards and flags. And the Humboldt Three who were, you know, taken and blah, blah, blah. Please, quiet, sing, sing loud, all of you. David, David in in Glasgow. If, if, if your grandfather was complaining about me saying nice things about Celtic, you must be a ranger supporter. Good for you. Quiet, Sing, that's who I'm preaching to. I'm preaching to my brothers and sisters in the choir and they're singing louder and louder and louder than we ever have done before. And we are having a huge effect. And the the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Tel Aviv is running scared and so they should be because what they're doing is inhumane, illegal and disgusting. And we will not allow it and neither will The 134 members of the UN who on 29th of November 2012 voted to give statehood to the Palestinian people, which they did, only an observer state, but nevertheless they are now called an observer state in the United Nations.
0: And we're seeing much more recognition of Palestine across the world, as you know, Roger, and absolutely, Palestine is still taking hugely... Importantly, united nations but again you know stories like that the, what you just mentioned this kind of recognition movement and the fact that palestine these 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 issues aren't really covered by the the, the media in a big way but look i'm just going to move to another p- point this is a from a question from robin Licker, and robin says uh, uh thanks for everything you do roger for the people of palestine as a punk rock musician and palestine action activist myself I feel inspired. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about direct action at home, like the ones Palestine action have been taking, including the four days occupation of the roof uh, uh, and of UAV engines factory in Shenstone, UK, which is part of EBIT system, who are Israel's largest privately owned weapons manufacturer and supply them with 85% of their drone fleet, including the Hermes 450 and Hermes 900, used extensively in Gaza in 2014. And in fact, today, I think there's a big story about the amount of weapons that Britain sells to, um, to Israel. And so, m- some of this weaponry, people have been saying, is being used to repress Palestinian territories. So, yeah. You agree with that? Yeah. They're, they're yeah, yeah, I read that story.
1: In answer, in answer to his question, what was his name, this guy?
0: It's Robin, Robin Licker.
1: Robin. Robin. I, 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 I know about that story. I watched it happen, you know. I should have commented, I can't comment on everything constantly all the time, but all I can say to those brave people, make any protest about this on behalf of their brothers and sisters, is more power to you. you. That is the choir singing at the top of their lungs when you do that. So, so, you know, we have to hear the choir in order that we can allow the choir to grow. And when the choir has grown to the proportions that they cannot um, ignore our voices. Yeah. Uh, we used to pretend in England, where I'm from, that we cared uh, about, about human rights and about justice, and above all, about fair play. It not as mat- matters not who won or lost, it's how you played the game. You know, it's written outside Lord's Cricket Ground. Uh, and we, we used to aspire to that notion that fairness is everything. Well, actually, we now discovered that that was just propaganda. It's drivel the powers that be in Great Britain, just like in America, and probably all over the rest of the world, probably in the you know, Arab Emirates, and, 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 um, and probably in the Lebanon, they don't give a shit. They couldn't care less. It is the nature of the way politics is, is exercised all over the world, that the people who are attracted to getting power are normally fifth-rate assholes. unfortunately. There are exceptions to this general rule, as witnessed by the fact that after the Second World War in England, um, the the labor movement put together the beginnings of a welfare state. Since that time, it has been whittled away at, and slowly but surely, um, uh, the masters of industry have whittled away John Pilger's wonderful movie, um, The Dirty War on the National Health Service, describes it adequately and far more eloquently than I ever could. But so those guys on that factory roof of that weapons factory, wherever it was, Chelmsford or somewhere, you said, more power to you,
0: more power to you. Roger, I'm just thinking, you know, (laughs) because... you when you, we talk about the, the great power blocks in the world and what have you and uh, the, where international statesmen and women sit and countries and what have you and the accepted view and to be fair it's also the view of the un that has spoken through its members is for a two-state solution when it becomes more and more apparent that this is so far away as to be almost unbelievable do you not think that these the 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 the, the, the sort of the the demand for a secular democratic uh one state solution that brings people together becomes more and more powerful and does this not give power to people to try and achieve this
1: well the consensus in the choir i believe now is it's the only option so the fight now in Palestine has shifted from being, because Netanyahu and his buddies and Begin and all of them, Diane and the whole crew over this last 70 years have contrived to create a de facto situation that makes a two-state solution impossible. All right, and the people have f- finally, the, the, the people who I admire and who I listen to, the Diana Butos of this world, say, for mm. you, two wonderful, wonderful women, you know, and, and, and you know, from a diff, different place, Paled, and pe- people have now come around, I think, to the view that we have to fight this issue on the issue of apartheid in a one-state regime we accept that there are going to be many many Jewish people who will be citizens of this single state if and when it is created but it cannot be a white supremacist settler colonial state where the indigenous people are ruled by terror That will not happen. The 134 states who constantly vote against it in the General Assembly of the United Nations and our choir will not allow it. And that makes me, even to be able to say that here in this forum with you makes me happy. It's no no comfort, you know, to the parents of whatever her name was, that paramedic who was killed in the great march of return protests, two years ago now. Oh, oh. It's no comfort to them. And, and it's almost no comfort to me either because I can't sort of read these stories without getting over emotional. Um, but nevertheless, it, It does provide us with hope, because there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just getting people to accept that there's a light there. And that's why we need to clear the rubbish, the rubble of the Donald Trumps and Bolsonaros out of the way so that we can see that pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Well, Roger, I mean, you know, I think think people can see that, you know, in our lifetimes, enormous things have happened that we all thought at the time could never happen. I mean, when I was growing up, I I never thought that um, Ian Smith, we were talking about Rhodesia earlier, Ian Smith would be uh, removed and there'd be majority rule in Zimbabwe when I was a youngster. I never thought the Portuguese would be booted out of Angola. Um, I never thought that apartheid could end in South Africa, really, I mean, we we thought there was gonna be a long battle um, did we ever really think that the Berlin Wall would come down um, and the GDR would be no more and the secret police would have to go away for a while? Well, we didn't. And so there's all of this prospect for change is still there. And, it's, it's, I, and I think this is what a lot of people who've been getting in touch today, their message all seems to be... They, they, they're, but they're very, they're, very de- they're delighted that you've provided this kind of um, hope and also kind of a, a leadership, really, you know, that, that's from a different quarter. You know, you're you're not a politician, you're a you're a rock musician, but you're you're informed and and uh, and and you're motivating. That's a great thing. And and so there's I've just got a couple of last questions because we are unfortunately running really. But I've got a question here from um, from Farah Kutene. I hope that's how I pronounce your name correctly, Farah Kutene And she says, uh, does uh, does roger support the palestinian refugees right of return palestinian refugees are the largest refugee population on earth i mean i that may well be right i don't know and the longest suffering there's certainly very long suffering and they because a lot of them have been exiled yes yes Yes, you do it's
1: absolutely fundamental for instance um to the to the object of the boycott divestment and sanctions movement which i've been part of since 2006 so 14 years i've been supporting omar bagouti and and all the other members of the bnc council yes of course the right of return is absolutely central and can never be and can never be removed from the table and the right of return that's why the key is such an important symbol the key to the front door now they know that when, when there is a resolution, they're not all gonna be able to their, the homes that they used to live in and kick out the Jewish people who are living in them. Disgusting as it is that their homes would, that they were thrown out of their houses and their homes where they lived and they were taken over by invaders, people who invaded their land. But nevertheless, they know that there's gonna be some other solution. Yet the key is a fundamental symbol of the principle that those refugees are Palestinians and this is their land and they must be allowed to re- return. Not now. They have an absolute right under all the conventions that we accept as being universal. The Geneva Conventions and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights every single refugee, wherever they may be, whether they're in Canada or the United States or in Jordan or the Lebanon or wherever, has an absolute right to return to their homeland and to, and to live there and to, be, and to be part of the um, population of that land and to vote, to have a voice. And their voice, given all the conversations about demographics and how many of them there are and so on and so forth will probably be in a democracy a louder voice than the voice of the israeli government right now and that will be a very good thing and i if, if i could live to the day when the whole of historic Palestine turns into a state where people are treated with dignity and respect, all people, it, Palestinian people and Jewish people, and let us not forget as well, um, Afri- African immigrants or, people, or Jewish people from Africa have been trying to move to Israel and have been signally treated abominably by, even though they're Jewish, by the Israeli government, underground. And let's not black. forget
0: the, the Christians in uh, in Israel, Palestine, as well. Uh, which, I mean, there's another minority that's uh, that suffered through the years, especially throughout the Middle East. Um, well, course, yeah, this yeah. is a very, very powerful. It's, a, it's so basic. All of this, um, you just wish there could be more programs it's and more pretty- discussions like this. And we're getting a fantastic. Uh, we're getting lots and lots of people coming in touch, getting in touch. Um, here we say Daniel Castello says, Roger, what connection can we establish between, well, this is an interesting one, between Vietnam, Palestine and the situation of constant victimization of the peoples of Latin America before de facto powers such as the IMF or the World Bank. So I guess Daniel is saying, you know, all these countries essentially are, you know, they, they, they're dependent on the largesse of the World Bank and the IMF and, 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 and really don't have much of a say. What's his name? Daniel. Daniel Castello.
1: Hey, Daniel. Well spotted, my friend. You know, we know know this to be true, but, but you know it to be true. The choir will all know it to be true sooner rather than later. We all see the game for what it is. The IMF is just one arm of the vicious unipolar system that keeps the poor people of the southern hemisphere in chains and 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 that includes as you rightly point out south america but it includes the rest of the southern hemisphere as well and in a far lesser way it includes all of us too it includes everybody in the northern hemisphere it's just that because our standard of living is so much higher and we're not live on four day, whatever the poverty level is now accepted as being. Um, it doesn't feel like we're, we're in, in chains, but we are. And for you to have noticed it, tell your friends. I tell everybody that I can all the time. You know, you do not believe this picture that is painted, that this is okay, that neoliberal economics work. They don't, it's a con. The work that Friedman did in Chicago back in the 70s and 80s is a con. And it's it's actually a blind to cover up what's really going on, which is the United States and others and European governments, the Belgians, the Brits, the worst of all, okay, the Germans, the Dutch, all of us connive together to support a system that encouraged the rape and pillage of the rest of the world, and certainly the whole Southern Hemisphere. So we have all grown up learning to live with the idea that that's okay. Well, it's not okay. And you're quite right to point it out. So thank
0: you for that. Roger, I'm gonna take uh, a a last question. This is from Stephen Watters. And Stephen says, uh, to borrow the words of a a famous song of yours, the tide is turning, you have said before, there are good signs, more people, in fact, you has been saying today, more people becoming aware of the injustices of uh, Israel towards the Palestinian people. Do you still see that happening? Is it happening more? Can you give us some examples to give us some hope? Thanks, says Steve Watters.
1: Um, I wish I could. Yeah, I wrote that song after Live Aid. So that's how old that, that song is. And you could have forgiven us in those days, and I hope you'll forgive me for feeling a sense of hope that maybe we were turning a corner. When Geldof stood in front of Margaret Thatcher and, and, and told her that we'd got mountains of butter and oceans of wine, which is in Leaving Beirut, funny enough, another song we talked about. And said to her, why, why do we destroy Why are we pouring milk down the drain? Because we're protecting price protection for farmers in some organized thing. Geldof looked her in the eye and said, why aren't we giving that milk to people who need it to eat? They're starving to death You know, in the way that he does, you know, when he's talking to people like Thatcher. (laughs) Bless you, Bob. I miss you. I haven't seen you for a while, but I'm looking forward to that. so is the tide turning i don't know the 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 clock you know ticks inexorably on and we all wonder why i'm i'm 77 years old i can feel you know old father time marching behind me tapping me on the shoulder from time to time and i go That's why isn't it? it fucking changed already. It's so obvious that this is destroying everything. This is suicide. This is the human race at the behest of the very, very few people who are very, very wealthy. They've managed to get the whole of the human race together or those who have any voice or power, because of course, most of the poor have no voice. They've got the whole of the rest of us to sit there Click, clicking the chamber round and pulling the trigger over and over and over again until we're going to finally find that one live round and that will be the end of everything you know and it may be a nuclear war or it may be the inevitable result of filling the oceans with plastic or ignoring climate change and and pretending that we can pretending that if we buy electric cars and build windmills and line Al Gore's pocket as well. Everything's going to be all right. It's not. We have to listen to the scientists and also all all the other people who speak truth. We have to listen to me. We have to listen to Chris Hedges. We have to listen to Noam Chomsky. We have to listen to Jeffrey Sachs. I could go on and on. I bet you I could name 50 people that we should be listening to, none of whom are... Are allowed to write an article in a mainstream newspaper or appear on Panorama because it's inconvenient.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there are lots of other media platforms out there which we're going to have to get on, and we're going to have to we're going to have to push and push and push. Um, yeah, we are. But this is so this encourages me. The fact that all these people
1: are, are are ringing in or typing in or whatever and joining in with this. This, because this, if it's anything, this isn't me whining and shouting and being angry. This is a celebration of my belief that the choir is growing. There are way more of us than there were yesterday and certainly way more of us than there were five years ago and certainly more than there were 10 years ago. We are growing in number every day and we are many and they are few and this is going to end this is going to end with our voice being heard, whether they like it or not. And if I can help to promote that, then that's what I will keep doing till the day I breathe my last breath. And I know you will too.
0: Thank you thank you very, very much, Roger. I'm just going to say uh, last word to Dave Clinch. Dave uh, is in North Devon. He says, solidarity from North Devon. Who would you have thought of solidarity in North Devon, socialism in North Devon, with your courageous support for Palestinians, Roger, from a frequent visitor to Israeli-occupied Palestine. Uh, From Bill Brown, Palestinians must wait for a solution until we have global mobilization, he asks. Um, then there's lots of, uh, there's lots of interesting discussion about some of your lyrics, various songs, which we simply can't go into, unfortunately. Thank you, Roger. Uh, lots of people have been in touch and I'd like to say a personal thank you very much to Roger for coming on today. It's been a terrific discussion. Um, we need more of this. I hope one day you'll come back again. There are so many people who wanted to speak to you and we have people from all over the world who are getting in touch. We don't have to wait for Panorama, BBC, but most people out there don't even know what it is. So anyway, Roger, thank you very much and uh, keep up the struggle. Uh, That's about about it uh, from us here at Palestine Deep Dive this week. Um, And thank you very much to Omar and Alex and the team, Palestine Deep Dive, we've made this happen. We're going to be back next week and uh, same time next week uh, with Palestinian author and activist, Dr. Ramzi Baroud. So until... This time next week from Palestine Deep Dive and from Roger and from me. Thank you very much indeed. Bye bye.